This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Before we jump into the podcast, I just want to make you aware of something that's coming up of one of our key partners, a, a group, uh, the Pillar Network, which I'm a part of uh, leadership there as well. We have our annual conference, the Unite Conference, coming up October 4th and 5th in Wake Forest, North Carolina at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, this is a time where we hear from plenary speakers on some key uh, topics. We're going to hear this year from Pastor Ed Moore, who's out of New York City, Pastor Juan Hernandez out of the country of Colombia, and Pastor Landon Dowden outside of Atlanta. There'll also be breakouts and theological TED Talks. There'll be some panels that we'll put on. There's going to be amazing food, uh, a good time of sweet Christian fellowship, uh, and so much more. And so uh, please make plans to be with us. It's October 4th and 5th. We're also having, for the first time ever, a pre-conference, an international conference uh, with our partners and friends at Reaching and Teaching. To find out more and to sign up, go to PillarUnite.com. Again, that's PillarUnite.com. Well, welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And I have with me today a returning guest, uh, Eric Smith, Eric Pastors. He's a professor, a writer, a Baptist historian. He came on before as we kind of started a series uh, looking at the past Southern Baptist Convention presidents. We'll also probably just throw in Baptist theologians, Baptist leaders, and others along the way. But we're going to jump in again with the second uh, president of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, a man named R.B.C. Howell, and Eric's done some study here, even considering writing in the future some more on R.B.C. Uh, so we've gotten to know you a little bit, Eric. Uh, appreciate you jumping back in with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this guy who got to, to deal with a lot. I mean, he was a pivotal figure in the Southern Baptist Convention, dealt kind of at the, the forefront of several different controversies in SBC life. Uh, but let's just start there. What does R.B.C. stand for? What's his, what's his full name? Robert Boite Crawford Howell, and uh, if you're a real SBC insider, you may recognize those names Crawford and Howell going together. You're used to hearing them as Crawford Howell Toy. Hmm. Well, RBC Howell married a lady with a maiden name of Toy, and so uh, the Crawford Howell Toy, who was dismissed from Southern Seminary, is uh, is a relative of RBC Howell and was named for him. Wow, that's a that's a nugget I had not even seen yet. So that good good start to the podcast, Eric. Um, <laughs> yeah, CH Toy, you heard it here first, folks. Baptist Twenty One. You can't get anywhere else. You can't get anywhere else. I mean, it's been around 150 years, but um, 
So, well, that's that's interesting. So, Ch Toy, who ends up who was engaged to Lottie Moon, Lottie Moon breaks it off. There's, a, there's we could jump and do a whole podcast on him. He he goes to Germany, uh, falls into some liberal theology, eventually becomes a universalist, I believe. Uh, and so he was named after RBC Howe. Yeah, it shows you just how uh, entrenched in like Vir- Virginia Baptist life Ch Toy was. He was a total insider. And uh, much loved across the convention at the time of that controversy, which is why it was such a big deal. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to talk about him another time. Um, right. Now, RBC is born in North Carolina, I believe. But tell us about his early years and upbringing. That's correct. So he's born in 1801. So he's a contemporary of guys like Basil Manley Sr., those people who were sort of in middle age uh, kind of at the peak of their career at the time that the convention was founded. Uh, Episcopal household growing up, had a godly mother, encouraged him to read the Bible. And at least as he tells it, he reaches assurance of his salvation and baptistic convictions through the private reading of the Bible. So he's just he's reading the word himself. Um, he will come under the influence of some local Baptist ministers who would visit and itinerate in his area, but he reaches baptistic convictions um, around 1820. Uh, He comes forward for membership and baptism in 1821 at a North Carolina Baptist church. The very next Sunday, so this guy's like 20 years old, the very next Sunday, the church presses him to deliver his first (laughs) sermon, uh, his first religious discourse and he blows him away. He, he preaches a sermon. He didn't just give his testimony. He gives a sermon from Matthew 11, 2 through 6 on the infinite grace of God manifest in the gospel of Christ. And it, uh, it knocks their socks off. It's super polished uh, and powerful. And two weeks later at the next business meeting, they license him to preach. And he begins evangelizing in that area. And 200 people are converted uh, very quickly into his ministry. So Right away, you've got the church recognizing his gifts, affirming him, and it seems like the Lord owns his ministry too, because it leads to a lot of conversions. So then he 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 goes to be ordained at a church, I think in Virginia. You can correct me there, but where's kind of the next step of ministry? He he ultimately is going to make it to Nashville, where a lot of his uh, work takes place, and there's some controversies we'll hit on later on in the podcast. But yeah, tell us kind of what happens from North Carolina and where he heads next. Yeah, so he's not had a lot of formal education, but some local ministers take up some money for him to go to Columbia College that was established in 1821 by Baptists out of that triennial convention. We talked about that last time. And he attends Columbia College for one year, so not a real long time, but he is a real earnest, um, self-taught kind of a student. He, he learns Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French. Um, and he's going to re- be real big on ministerial education later on, but just stays at Columbia College for one year from 1824 to 1825. He then takes a position as kind of an associational evangelist missionary in North Carolina, Virginia, sees a lot of success and fruit there. And then in 1827, he's called to pastor Cumberland Street Baptist Church in Norfolk, Virginia. He's there for eight years, sees 403 uh, people baptized during that time does a lot of missionary work himself. So like, you know, going out into the countryside, preaching and helps plant slash organize three churches uh, during that period. So, you know, this is very much like a frontier era where the the Atlantic coast towns and cities are sending out preachers into kind of the countryside and starting churches. And it's, it's during that era that he's in Norfolk that he marries uh, Mary Ann Morton toy. 
So CH Troy will be kind of like a nephew to him. Nephew, gotcha. So he's obviously got evangelistic fervor. The Lord seems to be blessing his the preaching ministry. Uh, we, we can get into it later. He's 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 definitely Calvinistic in his theology. Uh, where did that sort of develop? Uh, is he known? Is he known widely as a really powerful preacher? Is that kind of a, a like I guess part of his legacy? Yeah. So by the time he's put in eight years at this Cumberland Street Church in Norfolk, he's he would be seen as kind of a rising star among those historians call them town pastors. You know, uh, some of these uh, polished, educated, either formally or, or self-taught, um, really articulate preachers uh, from that era. And that's why in the early 1830s, uh, people are urging him to move to the West. So the early 1830s is a time not just for Baptists, but for evangelicals all over America, where they're thinking about the West. People are moving out there, uh, taking advantage of you know cheap uh, land and all that kind of thing, starting a new life. And all these churches are in a race for the souls on the frontier. So all kinds of different denominations uh, are heading out there. The Protestants are worried that the Catholics are going to take over. Um, so lots of different motives to go out to the West, just a general desire to fulfill the Great Commission. And... Um, Howell is uh, one of those guys who who hears that call. So he considers going to New Orleans. He considers going to St. Louis. But ultimately, he gets a call to go to Nashville, Tennessee, the Athens of the South. Nothing like it. Just, just about two hours away from here, uh, from where I'm I'm speaking right now. And uh, at, at this time, you know, we know Nashville is this real cosmopolitan place. Um, but it's it's still a frontier town, maybe 6,000 people in 1834 when he first goes and visits. There's no road from mm. Norfolk, Virginia to Nashville. So he's having to do like a riverboat situation uh, to get there. But he gets to Nashville and he he really has a vision for expanding Baptist life west of the Allegheny Mountains, taking it into the west. I'm not talking about like California, Nevada, New Mexico, the, the old southwest. So Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, that kind of thing. He wants to be the person who expands the kind of, I guess, robust, organized, denominational Baptist life that he experienced in Virginia. He wants to take it to the west. And so headquarters for him is going to be First Baptist Nashville, and that that's quite a story. If you want to hear about that, yeah, we're gonna, we're definitely going to ask about that. So, so, but when he gets there, is First Nashville already established? Yeah, it was established in the early 1820s, but it had really fallen on hard times. You know, we, we think about Nashville as being sort of the Southern Baptist mecca today. Um, at the time, though, man, it was barely getting by. Uh, they had experienced a major controversy in the 1820s through the Campbellite controversy. So some of your listeners may have heard of Alexander Campbell, um, who was originally a Baptistic, but he ends up pushing for kind of this uh, this restoration movement, this reformation movement where churches get out of denominations and go back strictly to the New Testament. So he rejects the use of um, confessions and creeds. He, he takes a different stance on baptism and what's happening there and the role that it plays in conversion. And um, the, it, just a, a very uh, unique kind of a, a movement. And First Baptist Nashville ends up calling a man who embraces Campbellite views. And the whole church flips and goes Campbellite. And yeah. uh, in, in the end, there's just a, a remnant of, of fewer than 10 people who remain committed Baptist as, as they we leave, would say. Do they leave First National and start another church? They hang on 
um, for a while. And then finally, they just kind of uh, uh, restart uh, First Baptist Nashville as a kind of a remnant. And so when RBC Howell gets there, they've built up from the, you know, eight little old ladies um, meeting at the fire hall or whatever that they were. And now there may be close to 100 people or whatever, but it's nothing what it was from before. They, they are still meeting in a rented room. Um, Powell comes in and he is this powerful preacher. He's an earnest pastor. He visits folks. He does evangelism like we would expect from what we know um, So already. And uh, the church grows tremendously. Um, he receives 46 new members in the first year, 26 come over from the Campbellite movement. By 1843, uh, 357 members, uh, and in 16 years total, this in his first in at, at First Baptist, um, he received 710 uh, new members, 364 by baptism. They end up building um, this beautiful building that's considered like the finest in the Mississippi Valley. And so uh, he, he, you know, God through RBC how really turns that church around. So do, what was the, do you know the name of the Campbellite minister who kind of led the, the break there in Nashville? Man, I've forgotten. It's not in my notes right here. I wish I could bring it no, up. So how does he, how does he, so Campbellite, you know, some of the things we'd see, they would be um, more, they would not believe in the perseverance of the saints. They would believe in a, a form of baptismal regeneration. Um, there's a lot of things. How does he kind of attack the Campbellite? Um, uh, I mean, we would say, obviously it's not, um, consistent with biblical scripture. Uh, How does he kind of combat what's going on there with the Campbellites? This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 of those.com. They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 yeah, well, the main instrument that he's going to use to combat uh, the Campbellite movement and really all kinds of other denominations that are scrapping with Baptists for uh, for converts is going to be this newspaper that he starts immediately, like as soon as he gets there. If I'm not mistaken, his first official day on the job of First Baptist Nashville is like January 1st, 1835. He gets there in 1834 and he starts the newspaper in 1834. So he, he immediately sees this as crucial to um, spreading true Baptist doctrine, unifying Baptist people. He, he'll he make a lot of comments about just how divided Baptists are in Tennessee. He finds 10 different kinds of Baptists uh, when he shows up there. They don't work together. They're suspicious of any kind of like central denominational activity. And anyway, he uses this Baptist newspaper. That's what it's called, The Baptist. Later, it'll be renamed The Tennessee Baptist. And that's how he goes after um, these other groups like the Campbellites. He mixes it up with Methodists and Presbyterians. um, And he really develops a reputation as sort of a a defender of a Baptist doctrine. Makes a lot of friends that way. Makes a lot of enemies 
that yes. way. Uh, one Methodist brother, J.B. McFerrin, uh, called him the inflated bird of Nashville, <laughs> bigoted, presumptuous for anything, lacking only the power to become a pope. Uh, and Alexander Campbell himself accused Howell of acting, quote, more like Pope Leo X than of a Christian preacher. Wow. Uh, so I would love one day to write a book about RBC Hall called The Pope of Nashville. <laughs> yeah. I want another B21 exclusive. Look for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, 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 the flying bird of Nashville. Um, that's fantastic. So we'll talk. I want to talk some about in a minute about landmarkism, and, which comes to to play there in Nashville. And then also he also writes against the anti-missionary movement. Um, so but let's start there. So uh, Judson is doing his thing. And then Luther Rice comes back. You see the forming of the Triennial Convention, uh, which would have been, he would have been very young at that point. What what's kind of role does he play in the forming of Baptist Associating and in particular the Southern Baptist Convention itself? Yeah. So how is a part of this tribe of pastors in that generation that, that we could call denominational pastors? So they, they're committed to their local congregations, but they also have a much bigger vision than that. They want to see Baptist unified to um, promote true doctrine, to um, carry out the Great Commission. I mean, also just to be real, to keep up with other Protestant denominations that have the same kinds of, of things. And so lots lots of motives there. And, but Howell is a passionate Baptist promoter. And so he's all about Baptist missions and Baptist societies and Baptist associations. And that's really, he's got this deep sense of calling to uh, export that from the Atlantic coast, like I said, over here to the West. And so uh, he, the, besides the the Campbellite controversy, which he immediately has to deal with at his own local church, really the next big controversy that he's going to deal with is, is what's often called the anti-missions controversy uh, all over, uh, all over the South, but in Tennessee in particular, uh, you've got Baptist churches who are um, obviously, all Baptists are committed to the autonomy of the local church. Each church is accountable directly to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and not to some external hierarchy or something. Um, but there were some uh, uh, extreme devotees of church autonomy and independence who really looked suspiciously upon any kind of central uh, denominational activity. Um, and there were lots of reasons for that. Some were theological reasons. Some were just kind of cultural uh, reasons, but they they resisted, you know, a bunch of city folks in Richmond, Virginia, uh, telling them what to do and and taking up money in their churches and all that. So they suspected missionaries like Luther Rice of being like a Tetzel, uh, you know, a te, you know, shaking down Baptist people uh, for money with their sob stories about the mission field and all that kind of thing. Uh, they thought that missionaries sometimes used Arminian uh, theological tactics in their gospel appeals. So they didn't think they were sufficiently Calvinistic, all that. And, uh, and also they were just real independent minded out there in the frontier. They didn't want to be, um, they didn't want to be, uh, ruled over, uh, by a bunch of elites. And so RBC Hall has to contend with that. And one of the things that he's going to use that Tennessee Baptist or the Baptist newspaper is to do is to promote the idea of missions of Baptist organizing uh, of Baptists banding together uh, to fulfill the Great Commission. And so he's going to promote things like um, uh, like Sunday school. There is no Sunday school 
in Tennessee uh, from among Baptists at that time. Presbyterians and Methodists have it in Nashville, um, and they've had it going on back in Virginia. And it seems kind of like this cutting edge uh, way to reach children with the gospel and even to teach basic literacy and those kinds of things. So Howell immediately starts a Sunday school at FBC Nashville, promotes uh, Sunday schools across Tennessee uh, through his newspaper. He's going to promote uh, Baptist temperance societies to contend against uh, uh, alcoholism. He's going to promote uh, Baptist missions. Um, and he is going to um, just a, just a host of Baptist sort of societies, Bible societies. I mean, there's, just, there's no end to it. It's part of this era that's sometimes called the benevolent empire. And it's it's bigger than the Baptist. Um, somebody like Lyman Beecher would be an example of like a New England Congregationalist who's a major proponent of the benevolent, uh, the benevolent empire. Um, they're usually they're post-millennial. And mm. so in their eschatology, they think um, Jesus will return and make all things new on the other side of a thousand years of gospel dominance on the earth. And so we are to, to work and to strive to bring in the millennium, to bring in the millennium um, and to hasten the return of Jesus. And one way we can do that is through missions and through staging revivals and just stamping out alcoholism and all, all, all this kind of thing. And RBC Howell is like maybe the most important Southern Baptist um, a proponent of this kind of benevolent empire, if that makes sense. Yeah. What are some specific things? I want to ask a couple of questions. One is just came to my mind and uh, it may have little to do with RBC House, so it may not be germane to the conversation. But what are some of the specific things he says to the anti-missions folks about, hey, no, this is actually, uh, this is biblical, this is necessary, this is good, that sort of thing. If, if, it, if it stands out, if anything stands out uh, in, in that area. Yeah, so he is going to defend uh, theologically the practice of organizing for missions uh, and is, is going to uh, make it clear that you can be a, a faithful Calvinist, uh, to put it that way. You can be faithful to the doctrines of, of grace as given in the New Testament uh, and still use means. So he's going to talk a lot about how um, God saves those whom he calls and those whom he chooses through the use of means, through through preaching, through gospel literature, through revivals. Um, that's how God works. And so you're not being unfaithful to true uh, New Testament theology by using means. Uh, and he's going to talk about that post-millennial stuff. He'll say, we think that um, obviously only the Lord can bring history to a conclusion, uh, but he's called us to participate with yeah. him and uh, and to get busy and to serve. And like the old hymn says, we'll work till Jesus comes. And that's kind of what RBC Hell did. So you may not know the answer to this question, um, and, and so just feel free to say, hey, we can talk about this another time because I think it would be interesting. There has to be some influence of, um, at this point at least, of the Baptist Mission Society, Fuller, Carey, on the Triennial Convention, also then ultimately the Southern Baptist Convention. How, how well do you know those links are, again, because they had to deal with their own, at least, anti-missions stuff, but how, how well do you know if there's— Oh, yeah, there's definitely a link. Yeah, so the— Baptist Missionary Society in England, the William Carey, Andrew Fuller Coalition, that's 100 percent what inspires the Baptist in America uh, to to come together for the Triennial Convention. So that uh, Carey uh, kicks off what we would call the modern missions. Movement. Obviously, we know there are other players involved, but he's the most visible figure at that time. And so when Adoniram Judson 
uh, is part of this congregational, uh, New England congregationalist response to the missionary movement when he goes overseas and then converts to Baptist views. American Baptists who have already been following uh, Carrie and the Serampore trio through uh, newspapers and so forth, when they find out that there's a missionary on foreign fields and he's a Baptist now, they lose their minds and they are can't get there fast enough to organize uh, some sort of a missions funding agency. Um, at the time, I've done some work on a Baptist named John Leland, who was very active in the first part of the 19th century. And uh, he, he talks about how all the Baptist associations in New England where he was, that's all they wanted to talk about. Um, they were all passing around magazines and newspapers about William Carey and about Judson. And uh, they're, they're raising money for missions at all their associational meetings. Leland actually doesn't like all that. He's, uh, he's got some problems with it, but uh, he's kind of a, gives a firsthand account of just what a craze uh, that is among Baptists. And so um, Baptist Southerners, this is for the Southern Baptist Convention, of course, but Baptist Southerners like uh, Richard Furman and, and W.B. Johnson, who we talked about, they're a part of the Triennial Convention and they're, they're bringing that missionary further south and uh, RBC Howell. Um, just carries that into the next generation. That's good. That's helpful. So let's then take it into his presidency. How, how long in his time at first Nashville does he become president? Is he, he would, I would assume just given his prominence, he's there at the beginning of the formation of it. Does he play any impact on the formation of the SBC um, specifically in the meetings in Augusta maybe? And then how, then what kind of takes place for him to become president and where is it going to work out in his ministry? Yeah, so he is still the pastor at First Baptist Nashville when the SBC is formed in 1845. He's actually not one of those fire eater kinds of guys that's um, beating the doors down to get out of the Triennial Convention and form uh, their own thing. He's a bit more conciliatory. But once the SBC is formed, he's all in. He's immediately like a, a vice president. He, he obviously is the most influential Baptist leader in the Southwest at this point, we haven't even talked about his role in Baptist education, like he's a founder of Union University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is where I went to college. Um, he's going to be a major agitator for the founding of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary um, in Greenville in 1859. So I mean, he, he's recognized as a major leader. Um, he's immediately, uh, like I said, taking, uh, taking the lead in the early SBC. But he's going to leave Nashville in 1850 to go back to Virginia, and he takes the pulpit of Second Baptist Church in Richmond. He really fits in there. You know, he's hobnobbing with the J.B. Jeters of the world and all these polished cats in uh, in Richmond, and he thinks, this is where I'm going to ride it out. This is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. I'm going to keep pumping out books. He's written tons of books on Baptist church government and theology and all this, and Baptist histories, and he just really fits truly in Richmond society even more than on the frontier. And, and he stays in Richmond for, um, for seven years. And it's during that Richmond pastorate that he is elected to the SBC presidency for the first time. And so he's elected, he's actually going to be elected five consecutive times uh, at five consecutive biennial Southern Baptist conventions. They're meeting every other year, 1851, 1853, 1855, 1857, 1859. Now, he only serves out four of those terms. He won't serve that fifth term for reasons that we'll talk about here in just a second. Um, but it's while he's the pastor at First Baptist, uh, or excuse me, at Second Baptist Richmond, uh, that he's serving as the president. 
of the SBC, but his presidency is really going to be consumed with that one more controversy that I'm sure you're going to want to talk about, and that's the landmark controversy. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.